Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, it's Sean here. Today I'm really excited to be talking with Juliana, who's a speech language pathologist with developmental language disorder, a hidden disability affecting one in 14 people. Welcome everyone uh, to this uh, episode of the Talking DLD podcast. I'm super excited to introduce you to Juliana. Juliana, can you tell us about your connection to DLD? Yeah, my name is Juliana and I was diagnosed with DLD much later in life. Juliana, the theme for this year's DLD Awareness Day is growing with DLD. Can you share with us a little bit about what it was like going through school? I'm imagining that maybe part of your diagnostic journey was also um, related to going through school. You know, how did that all come about? I was always the last person to finish any test that we had. And I was always nervous because I would have other kids like throwing spitballs at me or just kind of like making kind of side comments like, oh, we're waiting on Juliana, like, oh, blah, blah, blah. Um, but here I am and half the test isn't done. And then you have kids just kind of like, like tapping their leg or like tapping the desk, like, let's go, let's finish. Because you would get extra recess time if everyone finished early. And then I'm like, well, I haven't finished what I need to do, but let me rush through because I don't want to be the last one to finish all these tests. Um, so that was like the early years and then middle school was really hard. We did a lot of changing classes. Um, so you would have one teacher for math, one teacher for science, and you would go to different rooms. So it was difficult, at least for me to have like a lot of carryover of, okay, this teacher understands my learning style, but wait, now I'm going to go to this other teacher who doesn't really know what my learning style is just yet. Um, So that was pretty difficult. But then high school, we had the standardized tests and it wasn't until I was in 10th grade and we found out I was on a third grade reading level because I just barely passed the standardized test. Um, I was getting good grades, but high school was kind of the big star or red flag, depending on what you want to look at it as. Um, It was then that I would be spending hours studying and then I would go and take the test and everything would go blank. My mind would just disappear all those hours that I'd spent studying. And then there were other times where I, for the life of me, couldn't figure out what this one paragraph said, but it was a key paragraph and I knew that and I couldn't finish the rest of the book. Um, There was one time that we had like an assigned reading with a bunch of reading comprehension questions. And I told myself, I'll go to the one that has the longest passage the one that has the most questions that will be asked and then I never finished the shorter passages because I spent so much time focused on the long one that I wasn't able to get to the short ones and we had like a peer check review and my it was randomized but the person who had mine asked the teacher hey what do we do if our peer didn't finish all of those questions and the teacher's like oh just mark it wrong So I automatically had half of them wrong because I didn't get to them in time. But that was before I was diagnosed and got accommodations. Um, So the early stages were hard. They were difficult. And what sort of led to the point of actually, you know, seeking out um, support or a diagnosis? How did that sort of come about? Obviously, there was some, you know, red flags or stars or, you know, whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. that, that sort of was you know, preceding this point, but I guess, how did that next stage come about? My school at that point switched over from just regular like paper report cards to here's your grades online. So my parents at that point were able to see, oh, she's getting A's on homeworks and like class assignments, but C's and D's on tests. Um, Because that's where I would tend to just lose everything that I had just studied, it felt like. So I think I give a lot of my advocacy respect to my parents because I'm just the kid who's like, oh, like this is hard. I thought everyone went through this, but there was a lot more to the picture. Some that I I still don't necessarily know, but it goes back to when I 
almost didn't pass that standardized test. I had to switch my high school schedule to take this particular reading and strategies class. Um, and it was a good class, but it was a lot of behavior issues in that class. And I was there wanting to learn of the teachers trying to remediate behavior more than she's actually teaching. Um, so that was tough. I am a speech language pathologist now, and I am shocked that I never had any kind of speech language therapy or evaluation at that point. Uh, and my parents actually went to a private reading clinic to see what was going on because there were issues with reading comprehension from as far back as we can remember. Um, and that's when we found out I was on a third grade reading level in high school, just trying trying to get by. Um, I was doing it, but it, it wasn't easy. It was hard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, it's so great that you're able to share that experience with mm -hmm. um, our listeners because often we are focusing a lot of our energy and time on thinking about the people working with children. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of time spent on talking to teachers or working with teachers or supporting families. But I think there's a crucial element in what you've raised is that the young person themselves is the one sitting in the classroom, the one that really, you know, often does want to try their best, um, but actually needs that support to access the learning. Yeah, no, I often tell myself, I wish I could give my younger self a hug and just let her know it's going to be okay. Because, like, it's going to be hard, but you're going to get through it. Yeah. I think and about that often. You're now a practicing speech pathologist, as you said. Um, yeah. I'd actually really love to know, you know, with all of this in mind, how did you decide to study speech pathology? I, I've always loved children with special needs. We have a family member who, is on the spectrum, um, but we we were basically at a family member's 50th wedding anniversary. It was like a family reunion and my aunt really wanted to enjoy being able to spend time with her family, but she was concerned about her child. And my mom's like, oh, Julian, I'll hang out with him. And I was like, yeah, like works for me. Um, and sure, I did and it was, yeah, I was like, well, sure, it's just hanging out with someone. Um, but to me, it wasn't babysitting. It was you're interacting with someone and they just communicate in a different way. And it had taken my cousin a while to like have a bedroom routine. Um, and my aunt came like rushing back and was just like, oh, like, is he OK? Because at that point, we're trying to get him to bed and he was already asleep. And she like looks at me and she's crying. She's like, what did you do? Like, I, it takes me hours to get him to go to bed. And I was like, we just, kind of, I kind of, I followed his lead. That's what I did. I didn't do anything different, but I, I didn't know his routine. Um, and in that car ride home back, my family was like, you know, cause I was in high school at this time. They're like, you know, Jules, you should think about like being like a special ed teacher or something. And I was, I never really thought about it. And I was like, I mean, I like kids maybe. Um, and then I really, really wanted to learn sign language. So if you always ask me, why did you get into the field of speech language pathology? It will always be sign language, but then also now it's tied to, I wanna learn more about kids like me and help them not struggle the way I did. Um, so then I graduated twice without taking any American sign language classes. And then I finally did. I got to know my deaf professor very well. She actually gave me a name sign, which is a really big deal in the deaf community. And I, I love it. I sometimes feel like I can communicate better in ASL than speaking. It just depends on what's going on, what's being said. I love that story because, mm -hmm. um, you know, working working through, you know, all, all of these, um, I guess, what people could have seen as um, issues or adversities, you've kind of taken mm -hmm. this whole positive approach to it and, you um, you know, it's enabled you to do something that's wonderful, which I mean, I think speech pathology is the best profession in the world, but I'm slightly biased. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm sure it wasn't, um, you know, all completely smooth. Uh, were there any challenges that you faced going through college or university in order to become a, a practicing speech pathologist? Yes. Um, I say this with a smile on my face and also like a uh, at the same time. Yeah, a smile um, now. I had, <laughs> yeah, I'm smiling now, but it was it was it was rough. Um, yeah. I had accommodations in high school and then in college. And college is kind of where you 
you are your own advocate. Like your parents aren't necessarily always there for like meetings or anything like that. Um, my university, they allowed you to have like a support person, but mm-hmm. you are, you are your own spokesperson. Um, so I had to learn, I want to say like a fine line between asking for help and being annoying, asking for help mm-hmm. because a lot of people are sometimes like, well, like you should just get it. And I'm like, no, I don't just understand it. Like if you read something and it takes one person like a minute to read it, it's going to take me at least eight, 10 minutes to actually read it and understand it. Um, so I had a few accommodations. I had extended time, a reduced restriction environment and a few other things, but it was difficult at first. I don't, I didn't do well with a lot of changes and that was a big change like I moved out of my house I went to this new university I have no friends here yet and everyone it was kind of good because you're all at the same new starting point but at the same time it's hard because you really need a support group and I didn't have that at first I didn't know like who are my safe people um so that was a challenge I would say just finding who your support people are and then once I graduated my undergrad finding my support people in my cohort for my master's program in speech language pathology. You find some wonderful people along the way and they can act in supportive ways. But on the other hand, there's also some bad experiences like Mm. starting a program in a global pandemic and working online. Like that has its challenges on its own, but I found a way to persevere. The key message I took out of what you've just said is the importance of that support. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, those people that we surround ourselves with and, it's always going to, you know, tricky and hard to find those people sometimes, isn't it? But when you've got them, my goodness, it can make a huge difference. Oh, absolutely. So in addition to, um, you know, you've you've completed your speech pathology degree um, and you're now uh, working as a speech pathologist, is there any advice that you'd give to people with DLD who might be pursuing maybe a higher education degree um, or maybe they're thinking about their career I feel, and I say this with some shame, I think that in Australia, at least, if we are faced with um, supporting a young person with DLD, I would say that often they get pushed into non-higher education pathways, whether it's something that they want to do or not, um, to encourage them to be successful. Uh, And I think that... I really hope that anybody with DLD would be able to do whatever it is they want to do when adjustments and accommodations are put in place. Do you have any advice for for people with DLD or sort of maybe thinking about these things? I think it's important, like I said, to find your support group, but also know your why. Like, why are you doing this? Do you have to do this for a career advancement or do you just want to prove people wrong Mm -hmm. of them saying, hey, you won't be able to do this. Like, no, watch me, I will. And and then some. Um, But I think it just depends. This is still something that I'm trying to learn myself in year what seven of being in school it feels like (laughs) and each semester has its own ups and downs each professor in class have their own ups and downs um so it just it depends but at the same time I think for me I I need to set like a study time I need to have a no distraction zone so put away the phone my computer has something where you can get rid of the notifications that come on to um and just being able to find people to also keep you accountable, but also have time to have fun. Like you don't want to be studying every single second of every single day. And you need to make sure you're taking care of yourself, like eating and sleeping. It sounds so simple, but those are some things that I had to remind myself sometimes like, oh, I don't think I've had lunch today. Let me take a quick break and go get something to eat. And then as I think of that, my stomach's grumbling, like feed me. Um, so, but finding the best advice I would say would know your why, like, why do you want to do this? I, in the United States, you have to get a master's to be a practicing speech language pathologist. So I sort of had no choice, Mm. Um, but I found a really good partner in crime. We would always call each other. We studied together. um, And then we would also celebrate like milestones together. And Mm. Hey, we had a really big test. Let's go out for dinner afterwards. And, be like okay we're done and just having that good support network uh, I I think it's crucial 
there's some good advice there for anybody, you know, who's thinking about higher education. But I love the fact that um, when thinking about distilling to the purpose and sometimes it's about what pathway to take. I know that I've got, um, I've said this a few, I think I've said this on a previous podcast, but I, I've worked with a lovely young fellow who, um, you know, was thinking about doing a trade apprenticeship, but it wasn't so much mm-hmm. that um, he was discouraged uh, from doing something else. He actually thought that that's what his parents really wanted him to do. And when we actually sat down and talked about it, these parents were actually like, well, we didn't go to university. We don't actually care what you do. <laughs> you know, yeah. we don't we don't mind what you do. And actually that sort of uh, discussing expectations of yourself and, you know, what you uh, have been talking about with your family meant that he was able to kind of assess what he wanted to do. And his sister was was at university. So he thought that that was the logical pathway. And actually what he decided was, he's like, I really like um, uh, carpentry, but I don't really want to build houses and things. And so we mm-hmm. kind of realized that, actually what he wanted to do was a bit more fine than that. So we got into cabinet making and that was a really great outlet for him because he's like, I know what I want, but I don't actually know that carpentry is what exactly what I want. And so we kind Mm -hmm. of talked about a few options and he's like, Oh, actually the idea of making like furniture and kitchens and things like that. He's like, that sounds like more, he was quite artistic, you know, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. I felt like that was more his style and he's loving it. So, you know, second year apprenticeship for him is, been a really positive outcome um you know and other people are thinking well maybe I want to be I don't know an accountant like mum or you know maybe it's a chef like dad or whoever whatever but actually knowing what their options are is so important and and why you do that is because you want to be be that profession or be that role yeah or you have some kind of life experience and that's what inspires you to do Uh, the career or goal that you're in Um, I I definitely didn't want to work with kids like you. And I think that's always my (laughs) point of difference, which is always surprises me when I I love working with children now, but I never for once thought I would work with children. Yeah. I never thought I would do swallow studies. I just got comped is what we call it at my place to do swallow studies. Yeah. Um, So I take the patient down to radiology, give them some food with barium and see how the swallow is doing. And that to me was like the highest thing in speech pathology that was a goal of mine personally Mm -hmm. that I finally got. It was hard. It was Mm -hmm. very hard. I spent a lot of hours to a lot with a lot of different friends studying swallowing anatomy and whatnot, but Mm -hmm. I I finally got it. They had explained things a few different ways because my brain thinks a little differently, but they, they were patient enough to say, okay, like, tell me what you're seeing and I'll kind of help guide you, which was really, really helpful too. Yeah. Uh, You've talked um, so beautifully about your experience as a speech pathologist. And I'd love to switch gears a little bit um, to talk about your experiences as, as a DLD individual or a person with DLD um, who's also a speech pathologist, because you're in such a unique position. I may or not, may not have described you as a unicorn before we started, um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> recording today because I'd be I'm really interested in your insights about your lived experience um can you tell us a little bit about the sort of work that you do you've touched on it just then but also maybe the types of clients that you see yes I've seen everything from womb to tomb as there was a saying that I love heard. That. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I made it up but I just remember hearing womb to tomb yeah um I've had I haven't had NICU babies, but I've shadowed an SLP who has treated NICU babies. And that is my new goal. Um, but I've had patients that are hundred years old and I've seen everything in between. I have not worked in the schools. So I give major credit to my SLP friends who are in the schools, but I've done early intervention, home health, private practice, skilled nursing facilities. And now I'm in a hospital kind of like PRN or as needed. And I, I think it's important, at least as a speech language pathologist, to connect to your client or patient, at least in one way, whether it's, oh, we have the same birthday month, or I had one who had the same name as me the other day. And I was like, that's a rare name. You don't hear that every day. Um, but even if it's, if you're treating the child, being able to connect with the parent as well. I had a child, he was one of my favorites, but I was relocating and I was moving was our last session together and mom was bawling her eyes out she's like no I don't want you to leave I've seen him blossom with you 
And I'm like, but I'm just one person. Like I, I saw what he was capable of and I wanted to see him bloom into that big flower that I know he can be. Um, and she, she texts me every now and then about updates on how he was doing. They're like, oh, you, you helped shape him. And I was like, I didn't though. I followed your kid's lead. Um, but that's just something that I really appreciate is seeing how they grow, but also being there to see those milestones as the kids start talking or if they start communicating in their own way. I like to follow the client's lead. I had a kiddo once who would always flip down a table and he would tap on the inside of the table, even though it's upside down. I was like, all right, let's do this, but let's target some goals in the between. So we did. Um, and I really enjoyed that with like the early kids. I had a few school-aged children who came during like a private practice outpatient setting. And they reminded me a lot of me to the point of, I would ask them, do you understand this? And they'd say, yeah. And they would like go on. I was like, no, do you really understand this? Like explain this in your own way. And they're, they're like, no, I don't, I don't actually know. So my mission at that point was say, if you don't understand, you need to let someone know because there were so many times that I said, yeah, I understand. And I have no idea what we're talking about. And then we move on and everything gets harder. And I'm still trying to learn <laughs> A and B and we're in X, Y, Z at this point. So how am I supposed to find like the in-between if I still am trying to figure out the beginning, but now we're on the end. So that's something that was a struggle for me, but also that I want to instill in my clients and patients of if you don't get it don't just say that you know it to please someone because mm. it's going to come back and and get you and i think um relating to um your clients and the people you work with is that first step of rapport building and and building mm -hmm. trust i think that as a clinician i can't do my job if they don't trust me <laughs> If they don't yeah. want to work with me and, and trust that we can do something together, then it's not going to be anywhere near as effective, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. And so for clinical practice, sometimes we have to work a little bit harder to find those shared experiences. But if we actually, for me, in my experience working with kids, kids are mm -hmm. pretty open. Like they're going to tell you what they like. And I've learned a lot about different things from kids. I am right in the D&D &D stage with some of my clients at the moment because I know nothing about D&D &D at all, zero. Yeah. Um, but Stranger Things has really had this, you know, the TV show has really um, amplified people's interest in D&D. In &D. And so mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you know, I've got clients who want to talk about D&D &D and I'm like, right, I don't know anything about it, but let's find out together. Or you teach me about D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to learn a lot from you because you're the expert and I know nothing. So, yeah uh lots of lots of opportunities for discussing and and learning and actually letting for me for putting my kids you know in the driver's seat in the teacher seat they love doing that yeah and then it's good because you're working on turn taking but you're also working on social language and being able to have a conversation and start one maintain one end one and knowing like okay do we shift topics now like it just depends on what what the kid needs too. So there's there's a lot of good things that come out of something you like that you want us to work on. And do you think that that came a little bit easier um, for you because I guess you could consider their perspective, or is that something you still I have think to learn? So. Yes, I think I think it depends on the child because mm. every person is unique. But I think for me, if I can find that way to relate to them or kind of understand more of how their brain thinks, because that's how I think, mm -hmm. then I think that's a success. Mm. If that makes any sense at all. It makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I liken it a little bit to when I'm working with um, bilingual or multilingual children mm -hmm. in that I am monolingual. So I don't think about language in the same way that a bilingual or multilingual person does. So I mm -hmm. need them to explain to me how they think about language so I can really have that shared experience and understanding. Um, because you know, the idea of dreaming in a language that isn't the language that you're speaking at work is such a different concept for me. But a lot of my clients will say, you know, I have to translate still in my own head 
before I say something and check it. So yeah. it's that extra layer of thought that goes into that mm-hmm. language load. And I, I don't have to do that. I would if I was speaking in another language that I, you know, but I'm, I'm hopelessly monolingual. I do not speak any other language. And so <laughs> I don't have that understanding. Um, mm-hmm. You know, really getting into the mindset of the person I'm working with, you know, really hel- is helpful, I find, as a clinician. Mm-hmm. And I think you bring up a good point too, is I, I'm mostly monolingual, but sometimes even when I'm thinking, I'm still trying to figure out what word do I want to say? And then every now and then two words that I have mush together and it makes some obscure word that I've never <laughs> heard of before. And then I'm like, why did I just say that? And then my brain's like, well, you're trying to say this and you're trying to say that. So you just put them together and we got Pushed it in. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you kind of have answered my next question, but I mean, I'll ask it to see if there's anything you'd like to elaborate on is, <clears throat> do you feel having DLD helps your work as a speech pathologist? I do and I don't. I do in ways that, at least for my younger kiddos, I'm able to feel like I can relate to them more, but I'm very big on early intervention. I think that is critical and that is huge. But on the flip side, I feel like my DLD can sometimes prevent me from doing some work as a speech language pathologist on more of a company-wide standard, like productivity. And that's something that was really hard for me. And I ended up having to file for America's Disabilities Act, like accommodation in order to get a dictation device to help me write my documentation because my thoughts were going quicker than the way my fingers could type and they were very strict on productivity. It, it was just a lot of a big process with the paperwork um, and having to explain to my employer, hey, I do need accommodations. Um, and then one of them saying, well, that doesn't matter. And I kind of just looked at them and I was like, it took a lot for me to tell you that I have a disability. So no, I'm not just gonna let it slide. Like this is part of who I am. But at the end of the day, I, if I've made a difference in my client's life, I think I've, I've done my job, whether that's through swallowing or playing with toys mm-hmm. and everything in between. Yeah. And I think that the beauty of speech pathology is that it's so diverse. We do so many different things. Oh, I love it. It's not you the know, same day twice. No, never the same day mm-hmm. twice, but you um, your point around adjustments is really hitting home for me because if we don't have awareness of DLD at a, at a population level, right, and we've got this beautiful mm-hmm. study that's come out in Australia where, you know, only 20% of the general population know about DLD, uh, but more than 90% know about autism, ADHD, and dyslexia, right? If you've heard of something, you're more likely to think there might need to be adjustment put in place or you mm-hmm. might need to change the way in which you do something, which, you know, with the uh, theme this year for DLD Awareness Day being growing with DLD, it's just that a reminder again that kids with DLD become teenagers with DLD who become adults with DLD who are going to need yes. all kids of that. grow up. Yeah, mm-hmm. they grow up and that they're going to need support. And it's not that they can't do things because if you don't mind me saying, you seem like an incredibly capable person who's got, you know, so much to give in the speech pathology space. I love, you know, we've talked for an hour before we even started recording the podcast because I've enjoyed talking to you so much. And Mm -hmm. um, just thinking about the fact that imagine if somebody didn't do what you've done because they felt like they weren't being supported or they were told that they weren't able to, like such a loss, right? Well, there, there were times where I... I was so burned out and I texted one of my best friends from grad school and I'm like, I am just ready to quit. I don't want to keep going. It's hard. And she's like, okay, but what if the next day you have a patient who is you 20 years ago? Mm. And I was like, okay, yep. That's, that's my motivation. I'm, if I can help anyone mm-hmm. not struggle the way I did, I, I want to. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what motivates me. But it, it's it's hard. There's been yeah, sleepless nights and that I've had dreams of being in the radiology suite. And mm-hmm. it just, you take it each day at a time. Each yeah. day is different. What do you think 
uh, every speech pathologist needs to know about working with people with DLD, either from your speech pathology experience or your lived experience. Hit and me with it. Hat do I need to wear? Yeah, I was going to say, we talked about hats. Answer. Which hat are you going to put on first? Um, I think from a DLD perspective and an SLP perspective, that every person you meet with DLD is not the same person as someone else with DLD. Like mm -hmm. we're all unique. We all have our own characteristics and knowing how to shift what you need to say or do with someone in the best way that'll help them and their learning style, I think is the most effective approach. Um, I had an instructor who was kind of more hands-off mm -hmm. and in the room but not necessarily hands-on and explaining things to the point that I needed to learn so I was like okay I guess I'll take the initiative and ask like this is what I see is this what you see because I wasn't getting enough feedback that I needed um and so I think learning your learning style but also knowing your teacher's teaching style as well mm -hmm. I think that's a key to success I don't know. I'm. It's hard to differentiate which hat to wear because yeah. part of me wants to say, give them time, mm. but the other part of me wants to say, too much time can actually do more harm than good. What do you mean by that? I had a teacher who thought that me having extended time allowed me to second guess myself so much so that I would end up changing answers that were correct ah. to be wrong. Interesting. Yes. Like overthinking it. Yes, I was overthinking it too much. Uh -huh. um, and they, I mean, at this point, it was paper, Scantron, and pencil. I don't know what. Oh, they yeah, use yeah, nowadays. yeah, yeah. I was going to say so, probably but you something. You can see on the, the uh... ones that I had erased before and then the new ones. Um, and I think one of them kind of not took like data or did like a research study or anything, but kind of knew what I said first and then like what I did later on. And she's like, you you know your gut reaction. Just go with your gut feeling. Mm -hmm. um, and she showed me, because she was like, I'm giving you two Scantrons at this point. I want you to do your gut feeling with this Scantron and then do whatever you want with the second one. And I ended up doing worse because I was overthinking it. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, is just finding a, a good balance. Yeah. Knowing that you know what you know sometimes is tricky. Yeah, and being able to express it to others. I think at least with individuals with DLD, at least for me, it takes sometimes a while to understand what I want to say the way I want to say it. Like even that last sentence I just said, in my mind, I'm speaking it, but I said it wrong in my head. Um, <laughs> and I feel like that doesn't make any sense. But being it's able to just be sense. patient, I think is important. You just have to be patient. Um please don't rush me. Oh my goodness. I know what I want to say and I will say it in the way that I want to say it. But if you tell me like, I need an answer right now, mm -hmm. I'm going to freak out because mm -hmm. I might do the word mixing thing where I take two different words and mush them together. But also don't treat me dumb. Don't lower your expectations of somebody with okay. DLD. How about that? Yes. That's okay. my, I um, was going to say that's straight out of my discussions with teachers because I think as soon as we lower expectations, we do a disservice because mm -hmm. every person I've met with DLD is incredible. Um, mm -hmm. And it's actually finding the way in which they work best. hundred percent agree with what you've just said. Yeah. Because it, I, I know what I'm capable of, but. Mm, no, I was going to say, and it's actually made me think I need to go back and check with some of my teenagers about their editing skills. Like I think we do a lot on editing but actually, I wonder if they're undoing some of their work that they've done in the editing process. It's actually, you know, we That's often possible. focus on getting it out there and demonstrating knowledge and we teach them to go back and reflect on it. But I don't think I've ever gone back and checked to see that changes is, you know, the significant changes or were mm -hmm. right or, or incorrect, you know, for their responses. That's actually a really, hmm, I'm going to think on that. Thank you. To report back. I'm curious. I will. I will. That was my experience with that was a math and science yeah. class. Um, but now I'm curious on like the writing aspect of it too. Mm. Yeah. Food for thought.
I'm going to take that one away and, and have a ponder. <laughs> um, is there anything else you wanted to add about that point um, just before I move on about speech pathologists working with people with DLD? I think ultimately understand the individual with DLD. I think the most important thing or one of the most important things are to allow the individual with DLD to be in the driver's seat too. They can't just be the passenger the entire time. They need to be able to take the wheel and say, turn left, turn right. Whoa, hold on, like put on the brakes, please. Like we need to, we need to regroup and rethink and stop and figure out what it is we need to do. I think giving more initiative and respect. I don't want to have to say respect, but I feel like mm. there's been times where I'm not really respected by like my colleagues, my peers, because things become harder for me and it takes a while for me to process sometimes. Mm. And I would just hate to see the future generation not like voice their concerns or stand up for themselves or advocate for themselves because they're scared to. I mean, I'm scared too. I'll be the first one to tell you, but at the same time, I'm like, no, let's do it. I can't get anything done if I'm not advocating for myself either. Self-advocacy for me is almost the first most important goal to work on in speech pathology sessions. Because yeah, if you and that, yeah. can't self-advocate, then, you know, even if it's raising your hand and saying, I'm not sure, or, you know, it may not even be asking for help, just acknowledging I'm not really sure, then how can we create this sort of um, opportunity for support or safe space to work and collaborate or, or let that person lead their own lives to, to achieve whatever it is that they want to achieve, right? And I think that's important to do in speech or in more of like a smaller setting because when you have a class of, I had like 75 people in one of my classes yeah. Yeah. Um, or it was like a 300-person lecture hall, lecture hall I'm not going to raise my hand saying, I don't understand. I'm too scared to do that. And I like the class is moving on. I'll just go to office hours. Mm -hmm. um, but I have a class now that it's three people. And I, I don't mind saying, I don't know what this means, or I don't know what this acronym is. There's so many acronyms in our, oh, in so our many field, acronyms. not just our field, but everywhere. I don't to the use point acronyms where I'm like, anymore. <laughs> yeah. Reason. I'm like, can you please just define what this is? Because your version of this acronym could be the same or completely opposite of my version of this acronym because it depends on who you're talking to. Great, great recommendations. And I, I'd i love to know then, leading on from that is, has anything surprised you about being a speech pathologist with DLD? The most surprising thing I think for me is seeing the test scores of, you know a child is struggling, mm -hmm. But according to this test, they are absolutely fine and quote unquote normal. They're scoring in the normal range. And it's like, okay, but no, like this is just a test. This is just a number. Mm -hmm. Like I shouldn't compare someone to a number. Um, you have to look at the big picture. And I think that's something that's surprised me working with different and seasoned clinicians. If they have their own way and this is the way they're doing it, but this is what the test says. I'm not going to interpret it anymore. And then you have other people who are like, no, what about these other things? And yes, they scored in the quote unquote normal range, but there's other areas that they need to work on or there's other concerns that their parents have. So I think that's surprising. I actually was surprised how much I see myself in some of my kids mm. or I see like little parts of Oh, that reminds me of this one time back when I was their age and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. um, or just being able to say, like, I don't get it. And being able to feel comfortable being able to say that. I don't think I was very comfortable in school growing up saying, I don't understand this. And I would just go home, reread the same paragraph over and over again and hope that it would just click one day. And sometimes it don't. It, it doesn't. Yeah. Or like, it, so... Yeah. yeah, I get it. I think that um, that extra time taken to process and digest is often underappreciated. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned off air earlier, another person, another adult that I know um, who would say, you know, I thought it was totally normal to get up at five o'clock in the morning and go to bed at 11 p.m. because it takes yeah. me so much longer to read everything and understand everything so that I can do my job. Uh, yep, that's, you know, I've been there. I get can out the to door. That. Yeah, and so sleep is then impacted 
um, mm-hmm. because, you know, I want to be on top of things. I want to have it all, you know, and, and, and do everything I do really well, but it takes that additional time. Um, I don't think people realize how exhausting that is. It is exhausting. I tell my friends all the time, they're like, did you get enough sleep? And I'm like, no, of course I didn't. And they joke with me that I'm up at all hours of the night. And sometimes I am, but like I I do sleep because that's important. But other times I'm just like, I feel like I have so much I need to do. And then there's a, like a war in my brain saying, okay, get all the work done. And then the other part saying, no, you need to take care of yourself. So it's finding that fine line but I'm like, well, I don't want to get behind, but I don't want my self-care to not be taken care of either. Yeah. And that's so important. And mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer is, you know, with finding that balance. But I think mm-hmm. the first point for, for, for me is to acknowledge that actually sometimes the people I'm working with and talking to, they're already used up. Like, you know, if I'm seeing somebody at 3.45 after school, They've used so much of their cup already, you know, to, to get yeah. through the day. So actually for me to kind of spend that half an hour or 45 minutes going, let's just check in. Let's not do a massive amount of more brain, you know, stuff and just talk and, and discuss and listen. It's actually a really good therapy goal, you know? Yeah. Well, and I also, I want to go back to the question about what I think every speech language pathologist needs to know with working with people with DLDs please do not tell me to try harder because you have no idea how hard I'm actually trying Mm -hmm. that you don't even see. Like, and that's something someone told me, why don't you just try harder? And I kind of just looked at them and I was like, do you know how many hours in a day I have spent doing these like tasks that you're saying I'm not doing well enough? Like, no, I'm getting my own tutoring. I'm studying on my own. I've made study groups. I'm doing what I can. Yes, reminders here and there are good, but if it's something you know I'm actively working on and you say, do better, I'm not going to want to do any more. And again, it's about making that space for people to say those things as well. Mm-hmm. I don't think we do that enough in my experience. No. You know, it's it's very easy to criticize it rather than actually saying, how can we create space for support and open mm-hmm. communication, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. We're drawing to a close um, and I've had taken up so much of your time this morning, so I really do appreciate it. Um, But in your opinion, what do you hope to see in the future for DLD, whether it's in research or clinical work or maybe in service delivery models? Well, what are your thoughts? I think there needs to be more longitudinal studies, I would say. But how can we track children with DLD into adulthood? And then what can we find from individuals who are adults with DLD and what resources can we give them or make it easier even if it's just like a a mentorship program or here's like a checklist I think it always goes back to it depends on the person but for the future of DLD I I would love to have like the DLD project when I was younger and so when I found out I had DLD to be like, okay, who can I like look up to? Or like, who's like a, not a celebrity, but who's a good mentor. Who's someone that I can say, Hey, they got through it. I can do it too. I think I've seen this done in autism. I'd love to see it in DLD is um, often um, autism run programs where Mm -hmm. the mentors are all adolescents and adults who uh, running groups or support conversations with younger autistic um, children or teens, you know, I'm an old, bald, white bloke. Nobody wants to listen to me. You know, <laughs> like, let's let's take yeah. me off the table and actually get people talking and connecting, um, which is why I'm so excited for DLD Awareness Day this year, the DLD project. We've actually um, decided to sponsor some events in each um, capital city um, in the states and territories here in Australia with the idea of trying to get more people with DLD and their families to come together um, because we've just spent three years of shamozzle, COVID, you know, mm-hmm. lockdown, Zoom, all of this stuff that um, it's meant that I think we've lost some of that thread of connection between people, particularly at that mm-hmm. really critical point of uh, DLD being the new terminology nearly five years ago now. Well, it is five years ago now and mm-hmm. um, actually people owning that 
and people saying, you know, I, I have DLD and sharing that, but then all of a sudden not able to connect with other people. So I'm really excited for um, DLD Awareness Day this year because we'll hopefully have an event in every state and territory for people with DLD, which is cool. Yeah. yeah. And and that's incredible. Remind us what day that is again. So 14th, Friday, 14th of October, um, 2022. And this year's theme is growing with DLD. So big focus on the fact that DLD is not just for kids. DLD is no, yeah, like I said, kids grow up. I I would love to see going back to like the research. I'd love to see if there's some kind of research study that can be done on tracking children with DLD while they were in COVID. I think it's Mm. there's nothing that I know at this moment in time. Yeah, that's something I'll have to assign myself as homework. But being (laughs) able to see how that has impacted them and how they communicate because we've kind of switched over to like a virtual world yeah. for a little bit of time there and some yeah. of us still are but wow. how is that massively so yeah so how has that impacted how they're communicating how they're learning are they learning yeah. i i learned that i am very much not the best virtual learner i need mm-hmm. i need to be the, in the front of the classroom <laughs> i need to have teacher interaction it's so easy to just pull up another tab and yep. start doing different work or something oh, different. The ever never-ending emails, very tempting oh, yes. when you, yeah, yes, put yep. other things on. Um, yeah. so as we draw to a close, I've got one more question for you, and you've touched on it um, a little bit already. But at the DLD project, we're really focused on self-care and finding time to breathe in our busy day. Um, as a oh, as a busy clinician, I should say, what do you do to look after yourself? I try my best to spend time with my family and those close to me. Yeah. I don't want to think of the day that some people close to me won't be here anymore, mm-hmm. but I want to spend as much time with them as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I read something once that you should spend more time with people under the age of five and over the age of 85 <laughs> I love and your that. life would be fulfilled. Yeah, And I was like, oh, that's funny. But then the more I think of it, the more I work with my like early intervention kids or like birth to five, I'm like, wow, I'm having so much fun. And then I switch over to the adults and I have like my 100 year olds. Mm-hmm. Um, I always ask them, like, what is some advice you have for the next generation? Because I'm just mm-hmm. curious. And some of the things they have are very insightful and others are like, have more fun. Um, <laughs> so I think just for me, that's something I'm still struggling with. I think time management is a huge thing, especially because one assignment or task might seem to take this amount of time or I'll budget this amount of time. And then it takes all day. Like today I had an assignment that I was like, Oh, this should be pretty easy. I have like a week to do. And they're like, no, we need that by tomorrow. They told us today they need it by tomorrow. And I had a lot of other things on my to-do list, but I'm like, all right, this is a priority. I have to sit here and go through all 68 pages of this and make sure it looks good. Oh, um, well, I especially so, appreciate you giving up time in your evening. Yes, to do they this. were very appreciative. Ah. <laughs> um, but my my eyes hurt staring at the computer. So I think it's important to spend a lot of time in nature too. That's something that is hard for me I live in the city and you drive around places a lot but I'm like can Mm -hmm. we go on a a walk around the neighborhood or a bike ride or walk from this building to that building instead of taking the bus if it's close enough you're able to yeah so I would spend more time outside and less time in electronics as hard as it is because everything everything's there you have your research there you have your papers there documentation Mm -hmm. um and I, I ultimately really want to go camping with some friends because I feel like camping with no electronics would be a blast yeah there's so many memories that can happen around the campfire yeah sounds great well in closing what are some of the key points that you'd love um listeners to the talking DLD podcast to take away from our chat today I would say learn your learning style and your teaching preference and if you don't know what that is for yourself, to find out what that is. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I was a hands-on learner until I realized I need 
very much hands-on and I need like written feedback. Because if you tell me directions, it's going to, I'm going to get like the first thing and maybe the last thing, but everything in between, I'm not going to comprehend. So if it's in writing, then I'm able to make sure I check all those boxes. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something that I found more as I got older, Mm -hmm. but it's also something that is easier for me to complete tasks with. I would also say like individuals with DLD, we're still people. You don't need to treat us any differently just because we think differently. Mm -hmm. We still have a lot of valid thoughts and reasons and things that we need to express and want to express. But at the end of the day, we're just like you. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm so appreciative. I've said it about six times, but I'm going to say it again. (laughs) Thank you so much for um, joining us today on the Talking DLD podcast. I love, I've said I love as well a lot of times because I do, I love a lot of what you've said today. And I think that it will give our listeners a lot to think about. And hopefully, um, particularly for some people with DLD who are listening in, some great advice and things that they can think about as well. And those who are work of us who are family members and working with them, either in schools or in the clinic room, wherever you mm-hmm. might be, um, some really great tips um, for um, putting uh, people with DLD front and centre, put them in the driver's mm-hmm. seat, as you said earlier, um, so that they can navigate the life that they want to live. So thank you again. Um, yes, thank hope you, you for Have a great me. evening. You too. Thank you. Thank you, Juliana, for sharing that really amazing insight into life with DLD as an SLP. What a unique perspective for all of us to share in. Today on DLD Awareness Day 2022, over 40 countries are on board for this amazing event this year, 80 locations lighting up. And this year's theme is Growing with DLD because we want the world to know that people with DLD can achieve their dreams when the right supports are in place. We love this quote from Juliana, please do not tell me to try harder because you have no idea how hard I'm actually trying that you don't even see. That's some food for thought for all of us. So it's not too late to do stuff for DLD day. Head to rattle.org, get those posters, send them out, email them, (laughs) spam everybody. (laughs) We're purple. Whatever you can think of, just help us get the word out about DLD. Thank you for joining us on the Talking DLD podcast. Together, we are creating a world where people with DLD are understood, recognized, and empowered to live their best life.